Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Welcome to this week's show, where we're going to take on the looming question of our time, trade wars. Almost no topic has been more prevalent in our public discourse since Donald Trump was elected in 2016. We've seen trade wars threatened. We've seen us pull back from trade wars. And now we seem to be back in the game again. To discuss this crucial and all-important topic, I decided to turn to the person whom I learned everything that I know about trade from, my trade guru, as it were. And that's my colleague at Harvard Law School, Mark Wu. Mark had an important job in the Office of the United States Trade Representative. Then he decided that that wasn't enough. He went to law school. He became a law professor. He got tenure at Harvard Law School. And all along, the drumbeat of Mark's pathbreaking scholarship has been the growing challenges in the U.S.-China trade relationship and the way that those challenges would ultimately transform the nature of the international trade regime. Of all of the scholars that I know, I can't think of anyone else who started by saying something that left him way out on the dissenting cold side of the field, kept on saying it, kept on saying it, and then turned out to be 
painfully, accurately, and sadly right. Uh, Mark, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Noah. I wish it were under uh, happier circumstances than the fact that we're actually in a trade war uh, now. So let's start with the question of how much of where we are is Donald Trump? All those years when you were talking about rising trade tensions between China and the United States, you were not predicting there would be someone named Donald Trump who would become president, but you were predicting structural differences that you always said would lead to greater and greater conflict. Would all this have happened eventually in one way or another, even if Donald Trump had not been elected president? There is an underlying structural tension in the U.S.-China relationship. So to that extent, would the economic relationship have deteriorated? I think the answer is certainly yes. Would it have deteriorated in this particular way with this type of confrontation? I think that part is very much specifically Donald Trump. I don't think we'd be seeing policy conducted via tweets and sort of this <laughs> whiplash left, whiplash right type of approach. Um, that's very much a uh, Trumpian style of approach towards taking on China. And it's something I think has really thrown the Chinese for a loop as well. We'll talk about that. How do people sitting in Beijing, sophisticated, educated people with years of experience in watching the United States and understanding international trade and a long-term strategy that they were pursuing quite successfully. How do they think about the, the wild card or the curveball that is Donald Trump? And you talk to all of these people on a regular basis. So don't violate any confidences, but give us an overview picture. Well, I think over the last decade or so, the Chinese increasingly became more sophisticated in their, what they call American studies. Mm -hmm. So they thought they had the U.S. more or less figured out. And they had to the extent that we're talking about conventional, what goes on within the Beltway, right? They thought there are these structural issues, but they can be managed. Because, well, what's an example of the structural issue they thought they could manage? So, for example, they know that there are job losses happening in the U.S., they know that some of that is due to the fact that jobs are moving to China because of offshoring and so forth. They know that there's going to be a political backlash against that. Mm -hmm. uh, but they thought they could control that because you can certainly align the U.S. business community in a way that they have gains from the growing Chinese market. Mm -hmm. You have farm purchases from certain states. They're politically important. You have ways of trying to win over hearts and minds by making certain types of investments in states that are deindustrializing. Mm -hmm. So they thought, you know, people can sense that there's a China threat, mm -hmm. but that threat doesn't have to seem as ominous. And they were making friends and creating a certain type of alliances, but they hadn't anticipated much like most Americans had anticipated, the scale of the populist backlash and that it would take the form of Donald Trump. So I think that's really thrown them for a loop. Is that because they overplayed their hand? I mean, as you said, they had a strategy. And during the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations, it worked pretty well. There were people who were mad at China, but they were peripheral. China wasn't identified publicly as the great threat to the United States. And then, as you say, we got Donald Trump. I mean, there's one sort of cosmic way of looking at it that says they couldn't have gotten away with that forever, and they didn't. I think it'll be interesting to see how history judges this. Uh, you could look to say that that's the case, and maybe they tried to push too far too fast. 
But I think this is a bit like asking the questions that the Democratic Party not do enough after the 2008 financial crisis. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say with hindsight, right? On the one hand, the economy got better. I mean, on one hand, the economy got better. On one hand, right, China created a lot of win-win situations, especially for U.S. business. It helped keep the global economy afloat after the financial crisis. It became the largest market for many goods. Lots of people did well, either directly through their business in China or more indirectly People through their the pension States, funds. Yeah, right. through right. their pension funds, investing in certain firms that made quite a bit in China. And there were displaced pockets of people who suffered uh, tremendously as a result of this, but they thought they had that under control. Right. So now you're sitting there in Chinese government circles. You've got this Trump phenomenon to deal with. We're struggling here to make sense of it. How do they make sense of it? Do they think of it as, on the whole, as a temporary phenomenon, a temporary deviation, or do they think, no, this is the way of the future, at least with respect to U.S.-China relations? So on the one hand, I think they're struggling to figure out the same question that we're struggling to figure out here in the United States. They're trying to figure out, is this just another couple of more months until sanity returns, or are we going to have another four years of Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. And so that's the same question that we're sitting here in the United States trying to figure out. So you don't think they have a better or a clearer or more thoughtful view than, than we do? No, but I think what the recent trade war has made much clearer to them is that this has surfaced earlier than they thought it would. Uh, but sooner What's or later- What's the this in that sentence? What has surfaced earlier? The fact that the U.S. would see a rising China as a threat. I see. I think many of them thought eventually, eventually sooner right. or later, the Americans were going to come to some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, they would feel uncomfortable with the fact that the U.S. is being pushed out of parts of the Western Pacific or being displaced as the most important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they thought they had partner. five or 10 more years before it before it happened. <laughs> So let's talk about the content of the trade war now. And I want to start by asking you a question that troubles me very much. So if you move in mainstream democratic circles, then for many years, the background assumptions, certainly through, let's say, the Bill Clinton years and into the Obama years too, the background assumption of thoughtful policymaking liberal Democrats was international trade is good. They basically thought that on the whole, more open trade rules served the United States, made our economy more competitive, that the rising tide lifted all boats. If you ask them about countries that were raising people out of poverty by virtue of trade, like China, they would say, well, that's great. It's nice that people are being brought out of poverty. Now, in the last cycle of elections, certainly going back to, uh, to 2016, Democrats, and especially the more left wing of the Democratic Party, started rethinking that question quite seriously. They began to question NAFTA in various ways. They began to question the expansion of U.S. liberal trade treaties with Asia. And that didn't bring in the Hillary Clinton wing of the party initially, but it did bring in the Bernie Sanders wing of the party. Donald Trump got elected, and now the Democratic Party is moving even more in the direction of greater protectionism. So the question that troubles me is, is Trump a little bit right? Is there something to be said, despite all of our, I think, justifiable horror at Trump on moral grounds? Did Trump get something right or is he getting something right, something which is overlapping with some parts of the Democratic Party with respect to the significant downsides of the U.S.-China trade relationship as it is currently configured? I think the answer to that is yes. I think there is something to be said about the diagnosis of structural tensions in this relationship 
is accurate. The question is whether or not the prescription that the doctor is offering is the right prescription. Well, let's start with the but sickness before we get before we get to the cure. Let's dive into the sickness. Yeah. I mean, it's it can't just be Donald Trump's formulation, which is, oh my goodness, there's a trade deficit. I'm not even totally clear that Trump gets what the trade deficit actually is. So what is the thing that's the problem for you? So I think we should be clear about this, right? I think most people think the deficit is not the right barometer. So to the extent the Trump White House is talking about that, I think that's not correct, right? I think also to the extent that- So I mean, what Trump, just to be clear for, for listeners, the, the Trump White House is basically saying, we buy more Chinese stuff than China buys our stuff. And that's, after all, what a trade deficit amounts to. And most mainstream observers of trade, economists, scholars, and others think that who buys more stuff is not the only or the most relevant measure. Right. And that's because supply chains are complicated. The accounting isn't quite correct. All this stuff we can nerd out about. But more importantly- You can nerd out the, for a minute. Uh, this is deep background. You're allowed to nerd out for a bit. But uh, more more importantly, right, the deficit is a reflection of different types of savings rates. And so the fact that you know we are the reserve currency and the fact that we have a difference in savings rates means that inevitably, right, this is going to show up in this type of account. So, so we save less money on the average than many Asian many countries, Asian countries save. And yet many people all over the world put their earnings into dollars because dollars are reserve currency. And so that's always going to turn up looking like a trade deficit. Yeah. And just a question of whether that deficit is with which country. And it could be artificially larger with one country than another, because say, for example, with an iPod, Right. Um, with the last place it gets assembled is in China and it gets shipped over to the U.S. I don't think they make the iPod anymore, Mark. But oh, sorry. iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> Here, let's retape that part. I thought it was funny. Go ahead. <laughs> so let's take the iPhone, right? The last place that they assemble all of that is mm -hmm. in China. When it gets shipped over to the U.S., all of that is going to count against the trade deficit there, even though many of the component parts come from Korea, Taiwan, Japan parts of Europe, even parts of the United States, right? So it's And even though Apple issues. is an American company. Exactly. Right. Which is presumably gaining a huge percentage of the profits relative to anybody else in the supply chain. Exactly. So I think the way the administration is talking about how to measure this, trade wars are easy to win and all that, that's not quite right. But let's talk a little bit about some of the things they did, Good. I think, get right. Please. So I think there's two parts that we should disaggregate here. One is it's a widely recognized truism amongst economists, right, that free trade does expand the pie. Mm -hmm. um, Makes so, everybody better off. And the basic theory is if we're trading, it's to make us each better off. Otherwise, if I didn't think it would make me better off, I wouldn't trade with you. And if you didn't think it was making you better off, you wouldn't trade with me. And presumably you do some things better than I do. Mm -hmm. I do certain things that better than you do. Mm -hmm. So we each take advantage of our comparative advantages and then we trade this with each other. So I think Thank that's, you, Adam Smith. Yeah. that's widely recognized as a truism. Then there's a question of amongst that pie that's grown, are we sharing this fairly with our fellow countrymen? So I think this is a part that both Donald Trump as well as the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and increasingly much of the Democratic Party is now saying no, right? Certain greedy bastards took too big a slice of that that they made and they aren't distributing it. But the solutions that Donald Trump has for how to deal with this, right? We need to have more tax cuts to stimulate 
uh, growth to sort of filter all this down compared to the solutions that Bernie Sanders has and all that. It's very, very different. But so I think there's... But I mean, just to be clear, Mark, are you saying that the income inequality piece is one of the things that Trump is getting right? I mean, I don't dispute that income inequality is a hugely important issue, but I also don't really hear that from Trump. No, I think the part that I'm talking about is I think both the left and the right are saying the free trade, right, mm-hmm. expanded the overall national Hi. GDP. Yep. Mm-hmm. But then but it made only some Americans richer than others. a s- small fraction of Americans much wealthier than others. And it made a very small portion much wealthier, right? And, and did that, it make some people much worse off as well? It, it, made, it certainly made some people worse off. Some people, it's just marginal, right? Because it made you a little bit worse off in terms of putting downward wage pressure. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, you got cheaper consumer goods mm-hmm. so uh, that you could buy. So people, it's a right? bit of a wash. But for some people, they lost their jobs and they were in communities that lost a large portion of their jobs. And then that then turned into different types of spillover effects onto the service economy that then had certain effects into an opioid crisis and so forth. And these are quite concentrated communities and made those communities much worse off. So then right, so. one point on which you're giving Trump credit is identifying the idea that there are some parts of the United States, you know, we can imagine them as being in the Rust Belt or other deindustrialized places, where the spiral of destruction really was generated by relatively free trade between the U.S. and China. Yes. But I think we should be clear to say the effect of technology on that is actually as large, if not much larger than trade. Right. But there is this phenomenon that's happening mm-hmm. and it's this double whammy of technological change as well as globalization mm-hmm. that's expanding the pie for everyone, just like technology right, increases all of our productivity, but it's having a concentrated cost. And so I think that part is correct. And we haven't quite figured out how we're going to deal with those types of concentrated costs, as well as the fact that for some people, it's really been just a wash uh, or a slight mm-hmm. negative cost. And so I think that's one part. That's okay, great. Good. There's an other part, which is to say, even though we're trading with one another and it's expanding both of our pie, are we each getting our own fair share? And I think here's another part where both right the Trump uh, folks in the White House today, as well as many mainstream Democrats and Republicans would also agree to say that even though it's lifted um, both sides overall, mm-hmm. the Chinese are getting uh, unjust desserts. So this is the China is not playing fair version of the story. I'm fascinated by this and I want to go deeply into it. So first of all, you're saying you think you do buy that in part. I think there is definitely a mercantilist, beggar thy neighbor type of policy. That Say the more Chinese, about that. Those are, those are fancy words. Part of it goes a little bit like this, right? So you, there's too much steel mm-hmm. all around the world. Mm-hmm. In a free market system, some of those would go bankrupt. Some of the companies that make that steel would go bankrupt. Right. Yep. Over the course of time, some of that production was shut down. Mm-hmm. People would lose their jobs over all this. Mm-hmm. But eventually, you get to a stable level of steel production. Yep. Basic theory of capitalism. So Overproduce, lose your shirt. So this all works a certain way, but some, and the thing this is what the Chinese government has done, is to say, well, we want to manage the flow of unemployment. And part of this is for domestic stability purposes, right? Mm-hmm. If you have all of a sudden a couple hundred thousand steel workers all out of work right away, they're going to be disgruntled. This is going to be concentrated in certain parts of the country. So we want to manage this flow. Mm-hmm. So we can, because we also control the banks, mm-hmm. we can direct the banks to 
continue lending to some of these firms, even though they aren't all that profitable and mm-hmm. so forth. So prop so up the weak engaged, companies so they don't have to fire their employers. They're employees. engaging in certain types of subsidies. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, well, eventually this is a hydraulic system. It has to equalize itself out. So if these steel companies aren't going out of business, then more steel companies in the rest of the world are going out of business. Mm-hmm. And so this is where the market, if everyone behaved according to market principles, uh, it would spread this pain equally. Mm-hmm. But if one party is not behaving according to these market principles, then the other sides are absorbing mm-hmm. much more of this. Um, so we're seeing this type of effect, right? This is a beggar thy neighbor type of effect. And the Chinese will say, well- It's beggar thy neighbor just to be clear because if there's too much steel, someone's got to lose jobs in a steel mill. The question is in which country will that happen? And if it doesn't happen in China, then you're they're beggaring their neighbors in other countries. Exactly. So let me let me push back a little bit here, or maybe push back is the wrong word, but just to ask, Mark, isn't this what countries, including the United States, have often done in crises? I mean, if you think of the Great Depression, you know, the United States tried to engage in interventions to try to keep people in work because people were losing jobs at a rate that was devastating to the overall economy, or even to think much more recently, think of the bailout of the big banks after the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, isn't that really, isn't bailing out a big bank the same thing as bailing out the steel mill? So knowing there you're sounding exactly like what the Chinese response to this is, right? They're sort of saying, well, we did this, but if you thought this was a good policy, you could do it yourself too. And, but if everyone- I'm not just saying you could do it yourself. I'm saying we have done it. I mean, why wasn't the bailout of the banks in this sense? I mean, those were U.S.-based banks. The first, the W. Bush administration and then the Obama administration thought that if those banks went down, there would be huge knock-on effects for the economy. They were worried about the consequences of that. And so the government engaged in a bailout to, to prop up those those banks. I mean, from an economist perspective, is there a meaningful difference between that and the, and the propping up of steel mills? So the difference is this. If you look at just A and B, right, they might look very similar. Mm-hmm. But the difference is there, at least amongst the Western liberal economies, there's a sense of we only do this in times of dire financial crises. And when we do well, it, we, do we, it. To. we only do it on a very small temporary basis. And when we've consulted with everyone else around the world to sort of say, we all need to engage in this type of thing to sort of mm-hmm. keep the global economy afloat. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I think there well, is did a, we asked the Chinese. I don't think we asked the Chinese. Uh, well, we certainly did have a G7 and G20 coordination process okay, during so they, the so, financial crisis. So right? we were so, trying, we actually were trying to bring so it So we Fair were point. trying to sort of say like, what the difference here is what, or at least what Americans and Europeans and Japanese would say is we're not trying to do this on a day in, day out basis in the interest of getting ahead faster mm-hmm. and catching up with you and getting our share. Uh, getting more of our share. And there well, is no, we sense... only do it when we look like we're going to fall desperately. I mean, if I were the, you know, the Chinese respondent here, my reaction would be that doesn't make it better. That makes it worse. You're saying you guys only do it on a large scale in a coordinated way when you really have to do it. Well, we're going to do it on a much softer, smaller scale on a consistent basis so that we don't have a crisis like you had. I mean, well, that sounds a lot more prudent, doesn't it? Well, they they even say this, right? They'll say, well, look, we spend the same amount of money. It's just better we spend it keeping people going to work every day and they feel meaningfully 
productive, mm-hmm. right? You spend it on the back end, you lay them all off, and then you have to deal with it through higher healthcare costs uh, when they're uh, right. dealing with it, all of the- Yeah, and uh, we gave it to rich people because we gave it to, on the whole, because we gave it to investors and large financial so institutions. So I think the Chinese- feel as though in some ways, right, the West is pointing its fingers and saying, right, well, you have one model of dealing with it. We have a different model of dealing mm-hmm. with it, but they're both equally just why are you pointing fingers at us? But I think there is a sense here in the U.S. and elsewhere that what they're engaging in is a wholesale attempt to take more than they deserve based on the competition principles. And this ties in not just the subsidies is one part of it, right? But there's another type of beggar thy neighbor, which is just if we give you access to our markets, but you don't give us access to your markets, Mm -hmm. then we can sell more in and you can't sell as much out and you have this protected domestic market that you have outsized profits from and so forth. So that's a different form. Right. So this argument seems more powerful to me. So say say another word about this. I mean, in the context of the bailouts, you know, they bail out one way, we bail out one way. I guess we'd have to compare the total amounts of those bailouts to try to make a comparison. But I'm I'm not super sympathetic to the argument that there's a big difference in our bailouts and theirs. On the other hand, access to this thing you're talking about now, access to markets. There, there should be symmetry, right? If we give access, we should get access. That seems symmetrical and fair in some deep way. Is there, in fact, truly differential access at this point? I mean, is it true, as one would think just from thinking about it casually, that there's plenty of access to our markets, but we really can't access a lot of Chinese markets? Uh, absolutely. Uh, our average tariff rates are much lower than theirs. Even uh, before, even after the trade war started. Well, I think certainly before the trade war. Now mm-hmm. it depends on whether we go up to twenty five percent tariffs and yes. how, how large a vast and so forth. That difference is quickly narrowing, right? And part yeah. of the Trump message has been, look, it should be reciprocal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if our you're tariffs not, should be the same as your tariffs. If you're not going to lower, then we're going to raise ours, right? Yep. It's not just this. It's uh, so the, that's good. In your opinion, that's not so unreasonable. Uh, well, there's a different way of looking at it, which mm-hmm. is the Chinese way of looking at it, which is to say, look, we all negotiated to a certain level and you agreed to this level in exchange for letting us in. So you you negotiated to mm-hmm. this deal mm-hmm. and now you're reneging on it. So but isn't, isn't that was, the way it is in international negotiations? I mean, nothing is forever, right? Well, you and I negotiate a contract and then the contract doesn't work for one of us. Well, we renegotiate the contract. Yeah, but the Chinese view is, right? The Chinese view here is there's a way to renegotiate that. That doesn't involve one side sort of tearing it all up. But I think regardless of whether you agree mm-hmm. with the Chinese view on this, which mm-hmm. is to say you had legal obligations, we had legal obligations, your negotiators just didn't negotiate this right level. And the U.S. Mm-hmm. view of it is saying we expected over the course of time as you became more mm-hmm. powerful that you would right, unilaterally lower some of these as other countries have done and you have it, right? Mm-hmm. So there's differently different two different points of view on this. But I do think here, right, there is an asymmetry in terms right. of the market access. And then particularly when you think about investment restrictions, there are many more industries that are open, right, to China. In the U.S. In the U.S. Where China can come and buy a business or invest in a business, and we can't do the same in China. And I think when you compare it with other countries, 
um, Brazil, India, and so forth, right? The Chinese market is much more closed than even those countries. Mm -hmm. So it's not even one of those. There's is it fair a, to say it's one of the most closed markets in the world? Yes. I think certainly the OECD investment restrictions would suggest this is, but it's very asymmetrical. It's not to say all industries are closed, mm -hmm. right? And this is one difference between China and Japan. You go to China and you see foreign brands all over the place. Mm -hmm. You see, right, um, people driving foreign cars, buying uh, foreign luxury goods and mm -hmm. so forth. But there is this difference when it comes to strategic industry that they're interested uh, in capturing, mm -hmm. right? There are formal and informal restrictions in place. And what are examples about. of that? High tech, so uh, cloud computing, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. right? Uh, this is an industry that Amazon is not get, which is a dominant player in the U.S., is not able to get in. You're, or if you are able to get in, you've got to partner with a joint venture with a Chinese company, right? And this is part of the concern on the technology front: is if you have to engage in a joint venture, then eventually some of that technology is going to leak over to your joint venture partner. Sometimes they're going to then eventually dissolve the joint venture. They get what they want and so on and so forth. So that leads me this. to the next the next big Trump point um, that it also sounds like you're generally sympathetic to or that we ought to be generally sympathetic to, which is the claim that when it comes to intellectual property, the technological secrets that give you an advantage and get you ahead, that China is also not playing fair. Well, again, here it depends on what your view of fair is, right? But if your view is that, you know, if you've got big size and you can play one player off of another um, in order to get more of their technology and so forth, that's a view of fair, right? Then, yeah, the Chinese well, let's are playing by the rules. But, let's, but take a more think, uh, let's take a more intuitive view of fair. I mean, the more intuitive view of fair. So, well, actually, what about theft properly? I mean, I, I assume that China doesn't say publicly we deny that there is such a thing as intellectual property rights. They don't say that. Right? They, in principle, acknowledge that there is such a thing as intellectual property rights. Of course. So if we take that as our starting place, I mean, you know, we could have a all property is theft argument and say that there shouldn't be rights in, in intellectual property, but let's just assume that there are such rights since the United States says so, China says so, most countries say so. Is China systematically enabling, either through the government or through private actors there, the theft of intellectual property rights from foreign and especially American businesses? I think there is definitely theft occurring from China. The question is how much of that is simply the government actively encouraging this mm -hmm. versus turning a blind eye when mm -hmm. it knows that the phenomenon exists mm -hmm. versus this is what Chinese would skillfully do regardless. That division, I think, is more difficult to discern, but certainly there is, or if you look at, right, mm -hmm. where are most of the counterfeit goods made in the world today? Mm -hmm. Where are many of the cyber intrusions happening mm -hmm. uh, that into that U.S. commercial about. firms and so forth that we know about, right? Um, where is there greater pressure made on foreign companies to actually transfer technology? Mm -hmm. Now, you can argue whether that's a business choice mm -hmm. that certain companies are making mm -hmm. or not. But certainly with regards to the first two, mm -hmm. right, that is active theft. And that's uh, a thing. That's that a... is a phenomenon that is happening. So let me ask you about that because it's been a lot in the news because at the moment when it looked as though, at least to many outside observers, a deal to end the trade war was imminent, the Trump administration insisted on the Chinese government enacting into law stronger intellectual property protections than currently existed. And that appeared to be, I mean, we're obviously only going from the outside, but that appeared to be 
the leading reason the Chinese government balked and said, no, we're not ready to sign a deal. So I guess I have several, I have a sequence of questions about that. The first is, do you buy, I mean, I'm just giving you the, the standard New York Times version of what's supposed to have happened. First question is, do you buy that story that that was actually the leading stumbling block? I do, but I think there's a subtle nuance Good. behind all of this. We're all about subtle nuance. There is an issue, but the issue is less a matter of are they willing to make these changes in law or not, mm -hmm. but more are we willing to accept to have a foreign power, especially given China's historical legacy, are we willing to have a foreign power come in and tell us exactly what needs to get changed where in our own domestic laws. So there's so, a sovereignty question. So there's a sovereignty question. Don't tell us so. what laws to make. It's a question of pride. It's a question of national strength. It's a question of being a true sovereign. We will. It's this question of saying, right, we will make these changes, mm -hmm. right? But we're not going to make it when you hold a gun to our head and mm -hmm. tell us you need to change this, 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 mm -hmm. and this and edit it, mm -hmm. right? Because so, it looks bad. Because it looks bad and it especially looks bad in the history of having this century of shame and the message of Xi Jinping's era being right China's rejuvenation and rebirth and claiming its And the century place. of shame refers to a long period of Western attempts to dominate through imperial power on all over the Chinese mainland using navies as the British did, often trying to force changes in domestic law, most famously trying to force China, which was banning opium because they had their own opioid crisis in the 19th century. And Britain's response to their attempt to ban opium was to say, you must accept our opium. And in fact, we're going to invade you and force you to accept the opium, which is deepening your crisis because it it's, makes money for us. So against the backdrop of that shame, China's saying no more. Okay, that's super helpful, Mark. But now here's my question that I've been dying to ask you. Imagine you're the Trump administration. You understand that in China, the rule of law is a hit or miss game, right? Sometimes when laws are passed, they're listened to, but sometimes they aren't. More or less, the Chinese Communist Party makes sure that when it comes to the fundamental policy decisions, they will come out in court magically the way the party would like them to come out. And in fact, this is even enshrined in the Chinese constitution, which puts the party above the law. They're not hiding this fact. Okay, so that's the way things work in China. Now you're the Trump administration and you say, China, what we need you to do is change your laws. And then the Chinese say, well, that goes against our sovereignty. Why on earth, this is my question to you, Mark, why on earth would the Trump administration insist on the change in laws when A, the Chinese don't want to do it, but B, if they change their laws, there's no reason to think that would work. They could change their laws and just get around them. So this is this keeps me up at night. So Tell me, to explain, explain what's happening. So this gets at the second bit of the nuance, and I think this is actually where the impasse lies. Um, and this is what I was hinting at. The issue with changing the laws is not a matter of the Chinese saying, we're not willing to have these laws on the books, right? It's a sovereignty issue. The issue for the American side is, I think, they're not thinking of this as a magic bullet that's going to solve the IP theft issue or the market access issue and so forth. What they want to do is to force this so that the Chinese are publicly acknowledging this because some of these problems are not the central government right, pushing this down, uh, but it's a huge country. And mm -hmm. so it's local governments right, saying, well, 
we're getting instructions that we need to develop a high-tech industry here. How do we do this, right? Mm -hmm. And so having this on the books is helpful for conveying to the local government. No, look, the central government explicitly prohibits you from holding up a certain license in exchange for right certain technology being mm -hmm. transferred. So they think that's where it's useful, but they're not thinking this is going to be a magic bullet. What they think is the magic bullet or the Democles sword hanging over it is the fact that there are still tariffs in place. And so unless we see effects from this, the tariffs aren't coming off. And the mm -hmm. Chinese are saying, well, if we're giving you all this, mm -hmm. but you're not going to take off the tariffs until we give you even more and even more, aren't we mm -hmm. just giving you something for nothing? Mm -hmm. And so the hangup in the negotiations so right it's not now- just, It's not just the, it's, it's about whether the signal will be sent and whether the deal would involve the Trump administration keeping the tariffs hanging over the heads of China until change change came. And I think the fact is the Americans will have to give something. So they'll take some portion of some tariffs off, but they want to keep a significant portion on. And the Chinese want them all to come off and then saying, well, if we violate the terms, then you can put it on, but it needs to be a fair process that can go both ways. So you're right. killing me, Mark, because what you're leading me to is is to wonder, you know, maybe the Trump administration's approach of playing super hardball then is not so unreasonable. You know, the Chinese government is saying that it's a sovereignty issue, but really they don't want to send a message to their provinces that they really want to put an end to holding up of deals or intellectual property theft or other problems. This is very important to the U.S. economy. It's a question of fairness. And without hardball, now I'm going to sound as Trumpy as I can sound, without hardball, China's not going to blink. They play hardball, we play hardball. That's exactly where we're at. The question is right now, uh, both sides are kind of saying like, well, who can be more patient? Who's got more to lose here? And I think the Trump administration is saying, well, we can play hardball with you for a while, China, because we all know that you're more dependent on us than we are on you. And the Chinese are sort of saying, well, we know, you know, Americans, it just takes one dip in the stock market before, right? You're going to sort of say, okay, we cry uncle now and uh, we'll take off a greater portion of these tariffs. And so, you know, I think this is where we're at right now in terms of the negotiations. There's a famous article by a political scientist about why wars ever happen. And if I'm not mistaken, it's by a guy called James Fearon. And... The article basically says this, why do we ever go to war? I mean, we look at each other, I've got my army, you've got your army. We should both know who's gonna win. And the fighting is gonna be super bloody. So once we figured out who's gonna win, why don't, if you've got a better army, why don't I just give up? And if I've got a better army, why don't you just give up? And what he says is, the reason people actually fight the wars is, is there's actually uh, information asymmetry. I don't know exactly how strong you are. You don't know exactly how strong I am. And the only way, here's the brutal part, the only way we can find it out is by actually fighting the war and seeing who wins. And that's why wars are fought, according to this theory. I mean, it's a little simplified, but it's if it's true, it's deep and profound. Is that what's going on here? I mean, are we in a situation where each side credibly thinks, the US and China each credibly think that they can win the trade war? And the only way we can know who's got a better negotiating position is by actually fighting the war and paying the huge price that each side might pay along the way? I think what's actually going on is both sides realize we're engaged in a, if not decade long, then at least a generational strategic rivalry between the two sides. Mm -hmm. um, the 
but both sides are not quite sure uh, about uh, the other's ability to sort of persevere, right? The Chinese look at the Americans and say the Americans aren't making the necessary investments. They're overstretching their own resources. Clearly, we recognize their dominant military power. Clearly, they're technologically advanced over us, right? But they're, we just have to be patient. And over the course of time, we will catch up to them. So they're looking at the they're near saying, term. They're saying we're the turtle or the tortoise. They're the hare. And China's saying we'll wait them out. And so and the history is on our side. So their goal here is not necessarily to win a trade war, mm-hmm. right? It's to get back to a peace mm-hmm. that will allow them to continue to wait out mm-hmm. the Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the American side, you're looking at the Chinese system. And for many years, people just believed there's no way an authoritarian regime can have a growing middle class with greater access to technology and still continue to keep this type of system in place. Sooner or later, especially with the demographic challenges that China has, especially with some of the resource challenges, right? Not enough oil, not enough water, and so on and so forth, right? Sooner or later, this thing is going to go belly up the same way we saw with Japan and others and so forth. So we just need to sort of constructively and patiently engage, and sooner or later, China is going to change. So profit is not part of your job description, Mark, but I'm going to ask you to prophesy anyway. Who's right? Who's going to win this one? So this is the the big question, and it's not clear right now because it depends upon choices that each side makes. Right. So if we can look at the Chinese diagnosis of America's weaknesses and we can say to some extent they're correct. Right. America isn't investing enough in itself. It's overstretching its resources and it's engaged in all this domestic political turmoil between the two sides rather than actually fixing its own problems. Um, So it's a question of whether or not America can get back to work to tackle its own economic and uh, social challenges. Right. And on the Chinese side. You know, you can look at the American diagnosis of what's happening in China and say, you know, these trends are all true. But can the party state dynamically evolve over the course of time to deal with these types of challenges? Um, No one knows. So no one really knows. That's why I say it's not really about this immediate trade war and Mm -hmm. one side trying to one up itself over the other. Mm -hmm. I think this immediate trade war is just a skirmish Mm -hmm. in a... Decades longer, long, deeper, right? The, and the, what we're doing is setting the terms of this competition because one side wants to say, "Well, we should still continue to dance with each other, but see who makes the right calls in the long-term investments." And another side saying, "Well, if we're going to be rivals to begin with, maybe we shouldn't be as closely integrated." And that's mm-hmm. a debate that's happening, I think, inside the U.S. Uh, not just within the Trump administration, but within the U.S. polity overall, right? And on the Chinese side, they're looking at this and saying, well, if this is going to be a rival that's going to keep us down, why are we so closely locked in with them? Yeah, so in that sense, this is a battle in what I called a few years ago in a a book that I wrote on this very much with your guidance and help, Cool War, a long-term struggle between the U.S. and China, which is deeply uh, about competing national interests, but at least so far, has been done more or less without firing any shots, and which traditionally involved close cooperation on trade. What's going on now in this latest phase is that there's a lessening of that degree of cooperation and a use of trade as a more active tool of a more active tool of conflict between the between the countries. Let me ask a question in another hypothetical form. Imagine that the trade war continues for the rest of the Trump administration. 
And the U.S. does raise tariffs very significantly on China. And we're up to a 25% level. And that continues, let's say, up through the 2020 election. Now imagine a Democrat is elected. Let's imagine that that Democrat takes office in January of 2021. Is there any way politically that a Democrat under those circumstances who wanted to end the trade war by making some sort of concessions to China could do that even if she wanted to or even if he wanted to? Would that even be an option? I mean, of course, you might also elect someone who wants to stay the course, but you know, you run for office against Donald Trump. You want to say what he's doing wrong. One thing you might say by running is he's getting the trade war all wrong. Could a Democrat credibly do that? Or would that just look like, okay, we're ending the war by losing? I can't see it happening unless the Chinese really develop such a deep grudge with Donald Trump that they say, we've got more cards, more right. things we're willing to put on the table. We just don't want to give it to this guy because right. we don't like him. But we'll give well, it they to might the want next... to give cover to the next person. Yes. They so, might say a new person is elected. Now we're going to be nicer to you and then offer some, but nowhere near all of what you know the, the U.S. should want. So we might see something like that. Mm -hmm. But then you've got to ask your question, if you're the new Democratic president, how big does that pot need to be in order for you to take the political risk to accept that? Right. And so here's where I think the structural issues really do come into play. Mm -hmm. I just see that we are at an impasse where a lot of what the Democrats would want would be these structural transformational changes that I just can't see the Chinese anting up. But what I do predict will be different in the Democratic administration is that Europe, Japan, others will be more willing to cooperate with the Democratic administration to a greater extent than they have so far, because those processes are happening today. What about right? before the election? Can, can Trump blink or can Trump not blink at all? He can certainly blink and say that, you know, what he's gotten is more than anyone more else than ever enough. gotten. It's incredible. It's better than what anyone else has ever gotten. I mean, I think it could be the case, right? He'll say, you know, look, the Chinese now gave back what they took away. We, you and I don't know what mm -hmm. he's purporting was mm -hmm. taken away at the table. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that at some point he might just decide, oh, yeah, now I'm back to Remember a couple months ago, he was talking about this is the greatest deal ever. So yep. I think it's definitely possible that we could see a deal going into the election. And then he'll say, look, my hardball tactics got me more than anyone was ever able to do with the Chinese. So I think it's possible as well. Mark, thank you. You, as usual, made me feel more scared about the potential for a longer range conflict than I otherwise would have, but you've at least given me the gift at the end of saying there's some prospect of the resolution of, of the conflict. And above all, uh, thank you for educating me uh, and for, for making me think. I really appreciate your being here. Thank you. Thank you, Noah. And the feeling is very much mutual. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem 
They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.